Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending December 16, our second last show of the year. Uh, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you will hear the legendary Casey Bonetto come in and talk about a swinging Bella Christmas. And also, he sings a little promptu song for me. Uh, it's a Christmas carol called Tune Lord, which is embarrassing and beautiful all at once. And Daniel stubbed me at a party on the weekend, so I take it to him. <laughs> a Frankston local Paul Kennedy comes on the show to chat about his new book Funky Town A Year on the Brink of Manhood uh, one of my bridesmaids pulled out of my wedding so I've called in a backup and she has stepped up and is a wonderful new bridesmaid uh, Mark Fennell came on to talk about Framed on SBS chatting about Picasso's Weeping Woman painting which was stolen in 1986 Bobby introduces us to the politics of retiring footy jumpers Hayley Inch in her last screen review looks back at Interview with the Vampire and we do the final ever Breakfast's Breakdown Quiz possibly Melbourne's own Triple R. Casey Bonetto is an acclaimed musician, writer, composer, broadcaster and winner of awards, including Helpman's and Most Outstanding Show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for his musical Keating. For years now, Casey's helmed a swingin' Bella Christmas, which returns this year to the Brunswick Ballroom. And to tell us about it, the superfluity host and Tony Award deserver joins us now. Casey, a warm <laughs> welcome back to Breakfast. Thank you very much. Tony Award deserver, he said, come on, come on, laying it on a bit there. <laughs> Uh, How exciting to see you uh, in this time and not listening to you. It's so surreal, isn't it, to to see your lips moving? Uh, It's it's delightful to be here and and so, yes, so unusual to be in person with other people. I know. I get to be delighted by your shirt that you're wearing that's covered in kiwi fruit and figs. And it's been so long since I've been able to be delighted by one of your shirts. So, (laughs) welcome. Well, thank you very much. My partner, Catherine, was responsible for the purchase uh, of this one. But, uh, yes, I do like it. It's nice and colourful. I want to know about your relationship with Christmas carols. Have some come into your life that you, uh, you know, you've neglected in the past? Do you, you know, keep an eye on which ones are popular in the ether? Well, it's it's sort of, we've had kind of an incredible experience with with Swing and Bella Christmas because it started uh, when uh, said partner Catherine was running Bella Union um, in 2007. She ran it from 2007 to 2017. And... uh, in that time, you know, she said, do you want to do a Christmas show? And we, and originally we were just sort of smashing out carols and we would do like, uh, uh, you know, reggae Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and uh, uh, We Three Kings, which we still occasionally do in the style of Nick Cave, you know, so you get a bit of... <laughs> we Three Kings of Orientara. You know, um, and, and whatnot. <laughs> And just just sort of having fun um, pulling Christmas carols apart. And, yeah. and then as it went on, we, we sort of started to go, oh, you know what would be nice with this if we added some horns to the mix of it and, you know, get a bit of a saxophone, a bit of trumpet, trombone going. And what if we uh, did it, uh, you know, once we'd done that, it was sort of like, well, we should add a couple of originals into the thing as well just to, you know, to make it a variety, you know, show. Well, have yourself a swinging Bella Christmas <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And um, and the originals component of it was always, we're going to do that in the first set and then the second set's going to be all carols. And now the originals have grown so much that the first set is an wholly original. 
by and large. Um, they're all sort of uh, songs celebrating the Christmas season. And then the second set is still all, you know, <laughs> deck the halls of holy Etc. Do you have um, song sheet? Do, are you writing songs that are so catchy people can sing along instantly? Oh, I think a, a lot of the ones that we're going for are ones that folks already know the words to, or they have sections like the first Noel. They have bits where everyone goes, no, "Not sure, not sure, Noel, Noel." <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's there's plenty of opportunity for the audience to sing along. And with the originals, it's a bit of a uh, you know you never know um, who's going to pick up the songs as they go. But uh, that's a bit more of a sort of a the performance half of the mm. of the show. What makes a good Christmas song? What like what are the the bits and pieces that that come into Christmas songs that make them classics? If you're writing originals for this, well, it's in, one of the things that I haven't done that is one of the sort of staples of the. I don't think I've done it anyway. That's the staples of the the Christmas song is the person who isn't there for Christmas, um, ah. which is what um, White Christmas is about. For instance, it's about someone who is in Los Angeles and not where the snow is falling, saying, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. It's what uh, White Wine in the Sun, Tim Minchin's song is all about. It's what How to Make Gravy is all about. Um, you, you're not in the spot that you want to be in, but you're dreaming of having Christmas with your family, and that's a, you know, or family or friends. So that's a sort of a staple of the Christmas thing. I'm not sure that we've got one of those, but we do have a song about the Christmas ninja who uh, descends. <laughs> well, <do> tell. <laughs> well, the Christmas ninja lands on your roof and descends on Christmas night. That is, you know, not Christmas Eve, but Christmas night. And anyone who said anything stupidly racist or offensive <laughs> during the Christmas, you know, during Christmas lunch will meet their fate that evening. So you've got to be careful because the Christmas ninja is coming for you. Uh, you're wearing a hat. Do you do you wear a hat during the show? Are you a Santa? I I wear a hat, but normally one of those sort of swing, uh, fed, half fedora sort of uh, hats rather than a, a proper jingly Santa bell hat. Although I do have a jingly Santa bell hat. I do like to wear that too. Yes. Uh, and is there, what's a Christmas instrument? What is it? I, I mean, mandolin, of course. Oh. Mandolin is nice because I don't think we use one, but mandolin is very nice. Um, uh, jingle, you know, sleigh bells. Mm, Always good yeah. just to have those sleigh bells going ching, 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 ching. In the show as well, uh, Geraldine Quinn co-hosted it with me and, and she's got a, a terrific song called Every Single Christmas about the experience of being single, going to your oh, family's nice. Christmas. Huh. And that's got the sleigh bells, the traditional... Which is just puts you in such a Christmas mood. It's uh, how many shows are there, and how many can we actually see? Well, there's, there's, uh, it's on this Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. The Sunday is a matinee. It's the first time we've ever done one in the afternoon. Uh, the Monday and Tuesday are sold out, but the Sunday matinee is uh, still on sale. I think it's at mm-hmm. the Brunswick Ballroom. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be great fun. It's such a good room. We've been there once before when it was the Spotted Mallard in 2017, but now that the stage is set up at the end of the room rather than the side and there's sort of curtains up and there's a grand piano on stage, it's all quite swish. Mm. We look forward to it. Uh, And what's it like for you to blow the cobwebs out in a live sense? Well, that'll be we've got our rehearsal tonight. We traditionally have one rehearsal for the show, and it's tonight. So we'll be getting together and seeing um, how how we play together. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. 
and how how much of the songs we remember and and what it's like to play together. I'm expecting there'll be a little while of yeah, getting the getting the engine oiled up again. I feel like I might be a shock to hear people sing back at you as well. Yes, or along oh, with yeah. you. Well, we did. Uh, a gig downstairs at the Brunswick Ballroom in the Brunswick Artists Bar a couple of weeks ago, um, myself and Scott Edgar, uh, with our band The Billy Joels, uh, who only play Billy Joel covers. <laughs> uh, but it was so terrific to be doing our, for instance, our Rockabilly Uptown Girl and we'll go like... And to hear the whole audience of the, you know, in the Brunswick Artists Bar, they're going... Good fun. Uh, <laughs> what do you tell us about your year? Have you done any unusual side gigs or hustles? I've, I've done almost nothing this year. I, I uh, because there's you know I do occasional emceeing and things like that. I did some stuff for the book awards early in the year, um, but uh, so I think in the second half of this year. There's, uh, I did a couple of tunes for Sammy J, those things that he does on Thursday night. I did a couple of the arrangements for those, and and that's been like my only paying work. Yeah. Wow. So you sort of get to the end of the year and go, let me declare my income. <laughs> oh, that's not very much income at all. Yeah, I just got an email from the tax department saying, you don't have to pay ta- any more tax going forward. And I was, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's been yeah. one of those years. <laughs> you went viral, I suppose. Was that the uh, Bruce? Ah. <gasps> Oh, you Bruce Springsteen? The Bruce. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, the Bruce, the, the so close. Baby, you missed it by a nose. There was that one and it was the 2020s back. Yeah. Um, and it was great fun. They were really good fun to do. But, uh, but yeah, again, you just sort Not of enough. do them and send them off and go, okay. And now, luckily, I'm living in the country on a farm, so it's sort of like, now mow that thing. And now brush cut that thing. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's never a shortage of things to do. Uh, and superfluity? Continuing on, we're up to show number, we've just done show number 492, oh, wow. so eight shows into the new year, we'll be at show 500. Wow. Uh, which is a, a delight, and that's presuming that Triple R won us back, but yeah. but it, it it's such fun still to do, and it's so much fun uh, to sit down with Christos and Clem and, and just sort of go, oh, where, where are you taking me this yeah. week? You know. Are you still soliciting kickoff letters? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, we did a, a big sort of call out for kickoff letters a couple of weeks ago, not realising that we still had one or two in the chamber, mm. and about six people sent me in. So we've got a we've got a swag at the moment, but we always want more. All Info right. at superfluity.com.au. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, a Swing and Bella Christmas is on at the Brunswick Ballroom, Sunday, December 19, 2pm. Two shows are already sold out. That's the Monday, December 20 at 8 p.m. and Tuesday, December 21 at 8 p.m. For more information, head to bellyunion.com.au. Yes, indeed. Uh, Bella Union's got it. Or brunswickballroom.com.au will also get you there. Can I sing you a small carol? Oh, yes, oh, it's, it's a little bit religious, but... Uh, but uh... Long ago, so long ago, the journey was begun. The holy revelation, the coming of the one. As shepherds watched their flocks that night in distant Bethlehem, they listened to the universe. And so at 6 a.m., they heard the tune, Lord. Down the sound came streaming, and the tune, Lord. They thought that they were dreaming, but it was 2016. 
And their souls were washed clean with the dawn And so the myth of Sarah Smith was born <laughs> Wait, I've got another verse. My phone's gone blank though. Ah! Ah! Some say she came from Neptune or Jupiter, I heard. Some others say from Monash, only slightly less absurd. They said she brings the greatest songs a heart could feast upon. I thought it foolish fantasy, but then I turned it on and heard the Now her reign is ending all too soon, Lord. Another flock needs tending somewhere down by the coast. <laughs> and in five days at most, she'll be gone. But still the myth of Sarah Smith lives on. do that and then I started crying and I was like I'm a loser crying for a Christmas carol about myself <laughs> thank you I'm so what an honour to get a Casey Benetto classic oh, nonsense, oh my, nonsense. That's a, no, it's far less than the honour deserves no that's, thank you so much oh that's I that didn't know awesome. that was going to happen. Did you guys know? No. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Oh, God. Oh, thanks, Casey. That's all right. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hung out with one of my mates who um, has a dog over the weekend. Um, so we had, I guess, you might say it was like a f- my first play date. You guys probably do that with your kids. Uh, no, I wasn't expecting this. Mate, we've been in a pandemic for two years. I've not... June is a freak who does not hang out with other children. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Just putting that down there. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Um, yeah, so we... So Winnie's a four-and-a-half-month mini poodle and the, my friend's dog is a 15-year-old American bulldog. Oh. Uh, and her name is Mia and she is, like, she looks terrifying but she's so slow and gentle and just a gorgeous dog but when she walks down the street like my my friend says a lot of the time if people have got small dogs they'll they'll grab them or they'll they'll make sure because Mia a lot of the time isn't on a lead as well because she's just slow and walks beside her anyway we we um she goes oh we're going to go to this park and they're, they're like dogs are off lead are you going to be all right and I said yeah we've taken her to the dog park a few times I was like is it fenced in she's like oh not really. Um, no, it's not. And it was just like four big sporting fields of open space. I was like, okay. Um, she, she's been okay in spaces, but oh. she's like, it, it should be right. I've been here a million times. The dogs are all good. Uh, all cool. So we went there and Winnie just loves it. She loves socialising. Uh, and so she was running off and doing things. She came back occasionally. But then this one time, a couple of big, bigger dogs saw Winnie and they loved her and they went to play with her, but they just got a little bit rough. Mm. And then Winnie did a yelp and then Mia, this 15-year-old big-ass American bulldog, just gets up and goes in between, like, the t- Winnie and the two other dogs and sticks her chest out and the other two dogs just submissed and, and went away. And I was like, oh, my so God. so cute. Oh, my God, Mia, I love 
you. That's so cute. It was so adorable. It was like she'd been hanging out with Winnie. She'd met Winnie a few times, uh, other times that we'd been out to parks and stuff. And this particular day we'd been together for a couple of hours. Winnie was annoying the hell out of her jumping and sitting, lying in her bed and everything. And she's just kind of placid and was just like, whatever. Um, didn't seem too keen on Winnie but didn't mind her. But as soon as they went out and other dogs were around, oh, my God, she was just the protector, and I nearly cried there and then. Like it was just so beautiful. Too much. It was. It was. Do you think Winnie realised that she was being taken care of? Absolutely not. Winnie had no idea. She jumped up and chased the other two dogs again. I'm like, she's like, Winnie, what are you doing? I want a. <laughs> she I'll, just saved you. Want an old American bulldog to follow yeah. me around and be my protector? <laughs> what a guardian angel. I know. Yeah. No, she was. She was. Uh, she was gorgeous, and she just like she will block uh, this Mia, the big American bulldog. She'll if she's walking and stuff, she'll get in the way of people because she just loves pats. She's so and she'll just sit there and she'll put her paw on you. So I think she's. She's like 45 kilos. Like she's very big dog. Um, if you're sitting on the couch, she'll just put her paw on your lap and just stare at you f- mm. for pats. And it's a big bloody paw. She accidentally stood on my foot once. and <laughs> Tough but sweet. Tough but sweet, yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, it was very cute. You know, I found out, um, we, was Daniel Burt protecting me on Saturday when he didn't come <laughs> and speak to me at a party? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to bring this, this up, but No, I think you should. But I I've just found out. Good. So we had Sam Cummins, Triple R, Sam Cummins' birthday. He's filled in on this show a couple of times. You would know him well, <laughs> listeners. Uh, his birthday on Saturday night at the Footscray Arts Centre, gorgeous, where Laneway Festival's held. Yeah. He has just had it to himself, like a, an amphitheatre. My last Saturday night in Melbourne, sun setting, moon's out, beautiful. I get out of the house, doesn't happen as much as mm, it used gorgeous. to. I get there a little bit late into the evening, there's tunes playing, I'm catching up with people. I had a great night, come in this morning and start telling Daniel about it, and it turns out he was there and watched me and then didn't come and say hello to me. <laughs> You were so enthralled. Why would you want me to like, oh, hey, Sarah? Because it'd be nice to talk to you not on a microphone. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I can't believe you just were there because I've got bad eyesight at the best of times anyway. And and I get nervous when I walk. So I I tend not to like scan a room too much because I get scared I'm going to like lock eyes with too many people and then they're going to think of snub them yeah so i just kind of i just walk towards the bar and then hope that i run into someone on the way yeah. this is what i did and i ran into some people and i just thought you'd done a classic bert like and hadn't turned up and i didn't want to text you and pressure you <laughs> and you just never know and I, I i thought i'll text him and see if you're coming and then i thought oh no it'd be too much pressure on a saturday night you'll be you'll feel bad if you haven't come and it turns out you were just there standing in the amphitheater staring at me deciding not to talk to me <laughs> i was staring at you i was like she's not looking at me and I was like, oh, well, why would she look at me? She's busy having a fantastic time. <laughs> but I had a fantastic time with you. Why would I interrupt? you know I was having a fantastic time? Maybe you would have been saving me. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> I was having great conversations. Um, you know, the speeches. I love the speeches. I wasn't there for speeches. Yeah, right. So uh, Sam was described as compliant by his father. That's really funny. That was his <laughs> best attribute. <laughs> compliant. Um but, oh, Sam. but uh, oh, I, I mean, I feel obviously uh, there was a line to the bar, a huge line to the bar. Because there, no, there was a pop-up bar. There was no oh, line when I was there. I was really late, wasn't I? Yeah. Yeah. But but uh, then you, you kicked on, which is terrific. Yeah, I went to a club. No, it was a bar. Because <laughs> when you go to a club, I don't know, there's a lot of people dancing. It was a bar. Yeah. But then I was worried about, I haven't been inside of a venue that's really enclosed. <laughs> Yeah. Since reopening. And I became a bit worried about not wearing a mask. Yeah. I was trying to be relaxed. 
Alexis was... What, what do you think the ventilation was like? Well, look... Because it's all about ventilation. It now. is, and I was yeah. I was looking for holes and stuff, and I couldn't see many, and yeah. that was and it was worrying. And also, because when you're in a club, people have to lean right in, okay. And yes. I think this was more my issue. People were leaning in, and all the poor people I had conversations with probably think that I was doing a Daniel Bird or something. Like I was trying to get away, but <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I was trying. I I just couldn't. One, I can't hear very well. It's been a long time since I've been in. Um, like just an enclosed venue. Like I've yeah. been to gigs outside and I've been to some bars, but they all kind of, it's fully enclosed venue with a really good sound system that was super loud. And I just could not hear anyone, anything anyone was saying. So people had to lean closer to the point where I could feel spit on my lips at times. Yeah. People, oh. And so I was getting overwhelmed because I thought this is the first time I've been in this intimate conversation. And so I had to kind of remove myself to a corner, which was kind of people who... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you felt anyway, the spit I'm, a really on your lips. Good, I'm a really good time at the moment, guys. <laughs> but Come, hang out with me at a club. It was proper spit on the lips. Yeah, like little. And yeah, what do you do in that? Spitting. You just got to keep talking. You go, it didn't happen. I like walk off to the corner. That's what I did. <laughs> and then I feel bad for the people that were having conversations. I think I was like, oh, I need to. I need to shuffle over here now. <laughs> I feel like that's more effective than vaccination. Sh- shuffling off to a corner. <laughs> no, no. Well, just getting spat on your lips. <laughs> oh. It's like, that's, that's triple G. There's your booster. <laughs> triple R. Paul Kennedy is a journalist of over 25 years' experience, senior sports reporter on your ABC and author of several books, including Hell on the Way to Heaven, a key component in the push for Australia's largest royal commission. His new memoir, Funky Town, A Year on the Brink of Manhood, is a love letter to adolescence, football, family and outer suburbia. And to tell us about it, the youth sporting advocate joins us now. Paul, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Is it um, out of line to say you are probably a bit of a dickhead in high school? <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. Um, a, 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 fact, a fact that has been uh, discovered by many people who didn't know me then, including my children. Oh, so, of course. Uh, they were very, very, uh, well, I guess, I don't know, maybe pleased in a way to find out that um, that they are going way better than I used to. So, um, <laughs> no, that's... That's fair comment, and I think I described myself as a pisshead too. Uh, uh, what was it the, like? The old, what was it like reflecting on your time growing up in Seaford and Frankston? Yeah, it was great. I loved it, um, and it was it was difficult as well, I guess, because I was describing particularly that year 1993, where um, anyone who lived in in the area um, knew about uh, the, the crimes that were being committed then, so um, by a serial killer. So that was the backdrop to the. To the book, but then, yeah, I was just examining what um, the decisions I made um, when I was 17, and uh, as uh, I've, I've had others sort of describe that that period since, it's been uh, great to hear people say that the the book felt like I was writing about them, and uh, and probably the toughest guy I ever knew in Frankston um, rang me up recently and said, yeah, um, you know, and this this guy was getting in the punch-ons every week at the uh, at the pubs there at, at Frankston the Grand and, and all the rest of them and he said to me yeah I was sort of playing my role too I didn't really want to he said I, I always felt like I was a boy in a man's body got no idea what what we were doing at that age so it's pretty sort of universal um, themes there. It's a pretty tricky embarrassing age to write about for anyone like I look back at that time in my life and I think god you know I'm really happy 
we didn't have social media and, um, yeah. you know, I'm oh, so embarrassed. Yeah. Like, I li- actually live in my 17-year-old mind a lot, kind of re- reliving thoughts of, about who I was and how that made me yeah. who I am. Did you ever kind of, particularly now in the kind of environment we're in, did you ever go, oh, maybe I shouldn't be revisiting all of this and, and sharing it? Like, what made you want to share that moment? Yeah. Well, the timing was probably the opposite. I, I wanted to share it because of the discussion around um, masculinity. And, and I don't use the words um, toxic masculinity in the book purely because I, I tried to um, have that uh, authentic 17-year-old voice and, and we didn't have that term back then. But that's, you know, what we're discussing. Uh, you know, that we were there's, there's scenes there where I sit around and... Um, with my mates and talk about the girls and and use the same language that we did then. So, yeah, I, I was, um, I guess for about half a second, I probably thought, well, if I share too much, I might cop a bit of flack. Well, but that didn't really matter to me as much as having a, um, the chance to sort of tell my story about um, boys becoming men. And I, I just thought it was, I thought those themes are really important to explore in, um, you know, in our, our modern discussions, and and I'm not an expert, and I'm, I'm not sitting in judgment of anyone. I'm just telling my story, and um, and and hopefully it resonates. And yeah, thankfully it it seems to have resonated. It's very evocative of the time and place, as you mentioned. The police search for the serial killer gave the impression, mm. you know, 20 years or 30 years before of a lockdown, a, a town in lockdown, no, no yeah. one left. Uh, and I, you know, I grew up. Not far from there, um, from Frankston. It was interesting to read about the Grand. I don't know what it, was it about the Grand. I got headbutted <laughs> when, on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> when did you, when did you finish school, Daniel? Oh, two thousand and two or something. So I was okay. um, yeah younger than you, but yeah, okay. Um, so, but that was um, that was probably still in full. Oh, was in still in full swing right through the nineties. Mm. Um, and yeah, for those people that don't know the area like we do, it's um, the, the four pubs on the corner there are quite famous or infamous, depending on your experience. Um, and yeah, headbutts were were commonplace. Um, we used to gather out the front, and um, you know, those of us who who just couldn't physically or emotionally uh, will themselves to go home at any stage were there when the lights came on, and then um, herded like sheep out onto the footpath where where there would be horrendous violence. You know, blokes would just punch on and all the rest of it. So this was a... I saw it as a, a rite of passage, I guess, without sort of thinking too deeply about it. I wanted to fit into that culture, and I wanted to be one of those tough guys um, because I was involved in a local footy club. So there was... It, it was the it was that environment, and um, yeah, I, I was pretty clueless and just wanted to be one of the boys. Um, but all the time, I was sort of struggling against it as well. I was dead frightened any time I was in that sort of um, that that uh, violent space. So, uh, but I could never express myself and, and tell people I was frightened. Um, so I was living living that lie, and I suspect a lot of people were. But yeah, it was a it was a wild place. Um, but uh, as I've, and I've seen things that you've said too, Daniel, about how you um, how you love the place and appreciate it, and, and I do too. So it is a love letter to, to where I grew up in Frankston. There's lots of great um, things about that place that people don't know about if they haven't been there. But um, you know, I do love the place, warts and all. What about your relationship with football? Uh, and because you're right vividly about you know being so free playing and just being in the zone not to paraphrase but where where else can you get that sensation and have you found it elsewhere 
Yeah, I have, and I guess I, I sort of came to that realization too in um, in year twelve, in the, in the year that I was writing about, because yeah, uh, football, and, and that was I was playing at the Stingrays at the time, which is an under eighteen competition, which had just started up. It's been going for that long now, but um, that was my way of, of expressing that not all masculinity is toxic because that environment I was in, in that football team, was just so pure and so joyful. And it was all about um, just being happy and, and being in the moment, as you said, and, and time stopping because I just loved football. I, I don't know why, but right from the day I could walk, I just it, it spoke to me like nothing else. Then in year 12, I discovered the, the joy of reading and and it was just a snippet at that stage, but I had this great literature teacher who was sort of steering me in the right direction towards different books and authors. And and uh, for the first time, I started to find that, that, that electricity and that excitement, exhilaration that I had in football, I could find that in, in the written word as well. So uh, thankfully, I did that because, you know, in the end, that was, that was sort of my path with, towards journalism. That, that's how... Um, Really, that, that teacher saved me in a way because, you know, I was just a, um, I had football or nothing and then, then I discovered that I loved books and writing and telling stories and then, you know, I, I didn't know that it would happen this way but I started working in a newsroom and I, I fell in love with newsroom environments as well. So, yeah, that's, um, I have been able to get that. And, and the other place I find it is, uh, it might sound a bit cheesy, but watching my kids pl- play sport or compete or do anything or, you know, even <laughs> even sort of um, hang out together. So I get that joy as well from that. You, uh, you use the book as an opportunity to catch up with Mrs Mack, that lit- literature yeah. teacher. Um, with ATAR results coming out tomorrow, do you have any reflections on the, the importance of teachers <laughs> in this time of life? Yeah. I, I do, and congratulations if you made it through muck-up day. I never did. So. <laughs> 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 I, I stuffed up there, so spoiler alert. But um, uh, you know what? I, once again, I'm no expert, but I do know that once I left high school, my score was pretty average. I I, um, I did well in English in the end. I did well in literature. I did well in legal studies. The others, you know, were I just considered a waste of my time. So my score wasn't great. I can say that no one ever has asked me what my score was. <laughs> I, I, it might have changed, but I didn't go to uni and no one ever cared what my score was. It was all about my interview and, um, you know, I was going for a job. It was all about sort of the passion that I that I displayed <laughs> for, um, for that job in journalism. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that that helps anyone. I hope people are more academic and they've put in more work than I did at high school. But if they didn't, um, you know, people will hire you if you're a good person and and you um, commit to your work. So yeah, that's that's probably the advice my dad would pass on. And uh, and I am virtually my dad now. So um, yeah. <laughs> you talk about your sons reading the book or, or you know discovering things about you. Has anything changed with your relationship with them? Is there one part of the book that they've pulled out and gone, oh my god, you know, this has changed our thought of who you are, or or maybe how they approach their current lives? Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. The, the, my 13-year-old son um, listened to it straight away on audio. Um, my 15-year-old is sort of nibbling at it. I think um, there must be some trepidation there reading about his <laughs> stupid old man. But, um, but, and my 9-year-old, he's, he's sort of uh, bemused by the whole thing. But uh, my 15-year-old now is, is just on the brink of getting invited to parties and, um, you know, he's sort of pushing the boundaries of what's, what's possible socially. So, um, yeah, I hope that he... 
that he um, talks to me about all that stuff. And um, I, I do want him to read the book, but I don't want to push it on him um, because the, the, the thing that I hope that he learns is that I'll, you know, uh, we all make mistakes. Um, you know, you should take care of yourselves and take care of your friends first and foremost. And, um, you know, that everything's pretty much normal. What he's going to go through now, we've all been through before, the generation before. And, yeah, I just hope that he, he talks to me about it. You know, I was pretty closed off in that age, and I didn't really communicate with my mum and dad, who were great, and they would have talked to me about anything. But I was really, you know, emotionally suppressed everything, um, particularly my relationship with girls and my, my fears around that. So, yeah, I hope if there's one thing that comes out of it with my son, that they feel like they're, they're okay to talk to me about stuff and, um, you know, I can offer them some wisdom but maybe just listen to what they're going through. Because, that you know, boys, when we talk about masculinity, one of the big things is that emotional suppression. They feel like they can't express themselves in, in any way and, and often they're disparaging anything that they consider feminine, which is not really feminine. It's just, you know, um, sort of creative urges that may be um, pulling them in, in a certain direction or I don't know, but... Yeah, it's it's a shame if they can't express themselves in that time of life where you are starting to fall in love and and um, and want to explore the world and and do all those great things. So um, yeah, I, I hope that he can just talk to me. And and the other two, I think, will be okay. The, the second one, I said to him, you know what I was trying to say about drinking too much and not playing in the AFL. Um, and he just said, just looked at me with disdain and said, don't worry, Dad, I'll make the AFL. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Funky Town, a year on the brink of manhood. Read it, if only for the make-up day story. Incredibly, the police gave you the interrogation tape, which I hope isn't giving too much away. I've still got it, yeah. I've still got it. <laughs> <laughs> the Chelsea Cop Shop. Unbelievable. Nah. Uh, uh, well, Paul Kenny, thanks very much and have a great summer. Thanks for your interest, everyone. And uh, thanks, Daniel, for being a great advocate for Frankstones. <laughs> um, well done for um, doing all the great things you've done. Thanks, PK. Triple R. One of my best mates, uh, and she's also one of my bridesmaids, gave me a, a call the other day. Uh, she's she's five months pregnant, and um, and she's recently just been having some really bad back issues. So it actually stemmed from she played um, for Collingwood in AFLW five years ago or more. Um, and towards the end of her career, she hurt her um, she hurt her back and had to have a, a quarter zone just to get through the last couple of days. And I mean, brilliant at the time. Um, but yeah, her, she put her back out. And when she's gone to the doctors, they said that the quarter zone is actually just worn off and it's allowed whatever muscle was um, injured at the time to resurface. So um, yeah, poor thing, five months pregnant and literally couldn't get up off the floor for a couple of weeks. Um, she's gone to the doctors and now they've uh, said, unfortunately, she can't travel. So she's had to pull out of the wedding. Um, uh, so I I spoke to another one of my friends and I was just telling her about the situation. I was like, oh, yeah, so she's unfortunately had to pull out of the wedding. She's like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? I said, well, I was wondering if you could step up. And before I'd finished, she said, I'm in. <laughs> like she had just been sitting there waiting for her chance to jump in to be a bridesmaid. And I laughed. I was like, oh, great, that, that's amazing. She was part of the process for me when I was getting So on. no shame in Absolutely. being a second selection. She said at the time, she goes, I don't care that I'm the backup, I am in. I love that. What a good friend <laughs> that she'd been sitting there going, you didn't choose me. 
but I'm here. But if I'm you need. here. I'm here if you need. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. She. Um. Yeah. So she was great, and she's like, right. So, what? What am? What are my jobs? What are my roles? What do I need? And it. And I was like, oh. I mean, nothing really, like it just just there on the day, whatever else. She's like, but what is everyone else doing? I said, well, everyone will be there on the day. Um, and because she recently got married and she's so organised with everything. She's like, okay, so what else do you need to get done? It's like, oh, um, I mean, I need to get some shoes. I guess I need some earrings. She's like, okay. And she just was so like, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Um, and kind I just, of sounds like you should have chosen her from the beginning. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, like I, I was talking to Abby about it. I was like... The three of my bridesmaids are great friends and, and they did ask. They're like, you know, what do you need us to do? And I was just like, oh, I'm fine. Just make sure you support me on the day. And I didn't want to make a big deal of it because I didn't think there was anything to do, really. But now that I've got the new bridesmaid on, I'm like, oh, my God. So I purchased some shoes yesterday. Exactly. I, I have been shopping three times and I just can't find what I want. I told her what I was after. She sent through six different options of different places to get the shoe that I'm after, different styles. I was like, oh, my God. You got the job already. Calm down. (laughs) I know. And so I said to Abby, I'm just like, I got some shoes. She's like, oh, you found some. I was like, well, Poodles did. So that's the nickname of my bridesmaid. Um, She's like, oh, oh, that's that's great. I said, yeah. And she sent me some um, things for some earrings and I showed uh, Abby. And she's like, oh, my God. God, this is great. I don't think any of my bridesmaids are doing this. <laughs> can she help me? I was like, of course she can. Like, I, I didn't even know I needed no, her. You're outsourcing your bridesmaid. <laughs> yes, but apparently I do. So she's not only backup if... keen as, but actually very helpful. What did Jeremy Strong off the bench preparing for this role whole life? And in we go. I just find this. Uh, but although he, 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 the role he got offered was Kieran Culkin's role. Right. So he is a bit like Bridesmaid yeah, exactly. 2.0. Ah. Then gets Kendall, smashes it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk more about succession. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back, doesn't it? Oh, oh, my God. I think that's so funny. Yeah. Um, we've got uh, – <laughs> so I have a, a group – text with the bridesmaids and so I sent a new group text with the new bridesmaid I left the old one out of it and I just oh wrote God, so update harsh. God you really are a funny coach oh, I know it's <laughs> really right Cut. A, 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 yes. <laughs> out white in poodles <laughs> and they have, uh, and then poodles has just come in straight away right what are our dresses what are we wearing and I think the I mean, the messages used to be pretty, pretty chill and fun, and far in between. But now there's a lot of messages, mm-hmm. <laughs> and within 48 hours, actually, yeah, within 48 hours, she had sent through because I gave we gave our bridesmaids a colour scheme. Um, so she has she's trying dresses on and she's taking photos of herself in the change rooms and she's just sending all these photos through. She's like, "What about this one? What about this one? What are you guys wearing?" I'm like, "Wow." There's just I, I love the enthusiasm. Um, it's a lot, but it's, it's like great. She's like the the, recru- the mid age recruit, like Kane Lambert from the Tigers. He gets picked up a little bit later in their career. They think it's over. Come in, and they got to prove themselves. So they run yeah. the time trial the fastest <laughs> and the hardest, and then stay out there and doing extra laps like yeah. that. Like I'm saying, she's Kane Lambert. She yeah. totally is. Yeah, yeah, well, she is. Uh, why? Wh- was there a leadership vacuum? I mean, what, <laughs> where what was were going you on here? during all of this? Uh, I mean, whose job is it? 
I mean, to be the hard ass. Yeah, because yeah. um, you seem pretty laissez-faire as though it's all just going to take care of itself. Of course, we know that's not the way life works. Someone <laughs> actually has to step up. And so, does Poodles? Did Poodles sense a vacuum? You know what I think. You know, because I do like to organise, and I was organising everything except for me. And so, and 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 I and I don't normally fuss about things or whatever. Whereas she just kept pushing. I'm like, no, I'm fine. She's like, what do you got for shoes? I'm like, okay, well, I don't have any shoes. She's like, what about jewelry? I was like, okay, well, I don't have any jewelry. Yeah. Uh, so she just kept pushing and and finding. I've had situations uh, where, I mean, this is. Not morbid, but at my mum's funeral, uh, we had people, come, like lots of people there and there was lots of food and my friends helped out in the kitchen and Poodles took charge. Like yeah. she was just like, you do this, you because I had all these friends, they're like, what do you want me to do? That's and the worst question. I want you to tell me. Exactly. I want, just want you to do things. Yeah, right? Yeah. Because I, I messaged him before. I was like, if you guys could just help, we've got food and this, that and whatever else. And honestly, Poodles just went in there and she took charge and she told everyone what to do. She goes, you, just be with your family. I was like... That's Thank nice. You oh, I love so it. So she is just. I just can't believe you didn't, based on that alone, you didn't choose Poodles the first time around. Like, I kind of feel bad for her. Yeah. I mean, it was tight. It was very tight. But she's she stepped up. <laughs> but what about White out injured? I mean, is it, who's, I know. who's taking care of White? Well, oh, they not concern anymore. <laughs> They're at the end of their career. Proud <laughs> to pasture. Triple R. When Pablo Picasso's weeping woman vanished from the walls of the NGV in 1986, what ensued was a true crime sensation that played out in the headlines as thieves openly taunted authorities with a series of ransom notes. 35 years later, a new four-part SBS documentary unpacks the mysterious theft of Australia's then most expensive painting and to tell us about it, the presenter of the series, Walkley Award-winning journalist Mark Fennell, joins us now. Mark, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hello. It's always lovely to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me. It is. It's such a great series congratulations um what about this story intrigues you all these years later well because to me it was all very new right so about a little over a year ago i actually saw somebody actually tweeting about it and my first reaction to was like i'm sorry how is how is this not an incredibly much talked about part of Australia's history. And, and sort of, I, I did this thing where, obviously because I'm quite dumb, I just thought maybe I didn't know about it, maybe everybody knows about it. And I actually just started asking around people my age, asking around people who were around in Melbourne at the time. And what struck me very quickly is that um, some people knew about it and other people really had never heard of it before. But everybody had, <laughs> everybody that had heard of it seemed to absolutely know who did it. The problem was none of them could agree who that person was. <laughs> and so what we started doing was um, with the series was like, okay, so this is something where fact and fiction have melded in 35 years. So we basically set ourselves the task of sort of stress testing every rumour. And that was the kind of the goal of the series. And eventually what we found is that, um, you know, for people who aren't familiar with it, it was this absolutely ridiculous thing that could only have happened in this tiny window in the 80s where uh, the NGV had bought a $2 million, what ended up being a $2 million Picasso painting that not everybody loved at the time. And then over the course of a weekend, it was stolen. The thieves who called themselves the Australian Cultural Terrorists, like nobody realised that they'd actually stolen it because they'd put a card up on the wall saying, this painting has been moved to the ACT, which of course the security guards just assumed meant Canberra, but actually it was the Australian Cultural Terrorists. So the museums themselves didn't even know until these ransom letters started rocking up at newspapers like The Age uh, and, the Her and the Herald back in the day. 
And then these letters are ridiculous. Everyone remembers the letters because it was like they were mocking the police. Get this: the the police minister and the arts minister were one and the same at the time, right? So you couldn't have you couldn't have made this up. They were mocking the gallery, and the whole thing was an. And then suddenly. All of these fakes started popping up, and they literally started popping up all around the country. There were fakes in Adelaide, there were fakes in Sydney, they're all over the place, and everybody was just going bananas over this crime. But what was really fascinating to me is, like, I, I, on one hand, it was very, like, it's unbelievably funny, right, as a starting point. But then when they opened up this idea of a tip line, that a $50,000 reward, suddenly, and this is where things turned dark, people started using the tip line to exact revenge on each other. And so what happens with this crime is it goes from being very, you know, very funny and for, you know, long time people would just sort of uh, have their own theories as to what happened, but then it gets dark. And so I think the, the challenge was how do we tell a series where we basically debunk all of the different rumours that have been around for a long time? And there are so many of them. Mm. And we spoke to... God, it, Upwards of 50 people, um, some who would go on the record, some who wouldn't. Actually, interestingly, Triple R is at the centre of all this because uh, they, uh, well, firstly, a Triple R presenter was considered a suspect for a period of time, a guy named Roger Taylor. But also, um, after seven days when the painting wasn't returned, Triple R started getting calls, started getting calls from the so-called Australian cultural terrorists saying, we're going to burn this painting. And the presenter in question, Bodan, um, who I believe is still around, um, he... <laughs> He started getting harassed by TV cameras. It was like, it was a whole thing. And the, I guess the, the thing, thing about it is like, you couldn't do this crime at any other time in history, right? They'd just gotten the Picasso painting. And things like security cameras didn't exist, at least in Australian museum context. If, that, if security cameras had existed, this crime would never have happened. Mm. So there's a really tiny window in Australian history. And it struck me when I first saw it was, if this had happened in any other country, if this had happened in the US or the UK, there'd be a bloody Netflix miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. So we set, us out, set ourselves this target of can, can we unpack actually what happened? But also there are these sort of victims, completely innocent victims that got drawn into it that really had their lives devastated by it. And they've never gotten, you know, they never got the front pages. They never got their story told. Their lives have just been completely devastated by this thing and it was important to kind of return some justice to them and show how this crime was used by some of the worst people to to really ruin their lives did it work the stunt well that is a great question because it depends no that's a really really great question because it really depends who you talk to so many people will argue that um, the Australian cultural terrorists uh, actually succeeded in what they did because what they did when when they uh, as you alluded to earlier, when they stole the painting, they basically said, you're not funding arts enough. And, and it was also a bit of a dig at the NGV for spending all this money on a Picasso when there was a really thriving active art scene in Melbourne. It was really, you know, it really also, I think, speaks to Melbourne's identity as Australia's centre of arts and culture. And shortly after this crime, what is the thing? the funding did start to increase. Like, no one will ever say that there's enough funding right for arts. No one ever, <laughs> no one in the history of time has ever said, you know, we've got enough arts funding. <laughs> but it did change, right? It did change. And so there is an argument that it was a political act that succeeded. The thing is, it starts a chain reaction, right? So that can be true. 
But then at the same time, all these other things can be true too. And they don't cancel each other out. They don't balance each other out. They simply coexist. Mm -hmm. But one side of the story gets told and the other one was largely ignored. And I thought it was important to kind of put those things in context that actually from a political standpoint, yeah, yeah, no, no, in many ways it, it did work. And also off the back of that, the NGV itself started getting more funding and certainly for things like security. I mean, one of the biggest issues at the time uh, was a lot of the, the blame for this was hung on the security guards as who at the same time were having industrial action with the, with the gallery. And so some of that started to get resolved pretty quickly because there was all of these eyeballs. You know, when you, when you have a, a minister who's both the arts and police minister, mm. this pressure cooker starts to kind of sit over the situation. So to answer your question, yes, it did, but there's all these other consequences that nobody saw coming. They took their chairs, Mark. I know. I know. We actually spoke to some of the, the security guards were already quite old at the time. So we spoke to some of the security guards who were, who were really getting on. And, and in the end, we didn't think putting them on TV was necessarily going to be helpful to anybody. But um, yeah, they, they're still quite salty about it. Actually, the, the, actually, one of the interesting things about this, a lot of people, you know, for something that happened 35 years ago, a lot of people still really upset about it, mm. how they were treated, how they were demonized. And I think I think that's a really important part of it as well, that, that a lot of people felt like there was a lot of blame. You know, as, as entertaining as it was from a, I guess, from a public standpoint, for the people at the inside it, there's a lot of hurt still there. Yeah. Did you think at all, I mean, this is more of a thought experiment, so maybe not totally relatable, <laughs> but did you think at all about if this had happened today? So remove the fact that we have video cameras everywhere and it's hard to believe, but if this same stunt was pulled today, how Australia would respond to it now as opposed to how we did then? Yeah, it's interesting, but like Virginia Trioli is actually in the film, and um, she was a, she was a young art student when this happened, and then she did a, a retrospective on it um, ten years later, and she made the observation that I would never have concluded, which is, you know, this was for many people the first time they'd even heard of the concept of contemporary art. Huh. And I think now about how much art and culture is central to the identity of Melbourne. But I think it's a time when actually that wasn't as sort of bedded in uh, as, as I assume it to be now. And I think that was a really telling, kind of telling point, like how much the identity of the city wasn't built around this, that it would ultimately become a really important part of, of what the nation thinks about Melbourne as well. So I, I, think, I think there's an identity component to it. Um, there's also a bunch of technical things. So, you know, the NGV was in pretty bad shape in the mid-'80s. Um, you know, we, there was, like, fake walls everywhere where you could hide and things like that. There was also an open-door policy with what is now um, the art school. So you could walk – if you are at the art school, you could just walk in and out, right? <laughs> so that, you know, <laughs> as a result of that, the police were like – well, it was definitely some art students. And you had all these, you know, art studios around the, around the state being raided by police. And we have the lead, um, the lead investigator uh, who was on the case back in the 80s has never spoken before. He spoke to us and he was just like, it was ridiculous. You know, we didn't find, we didn't find the bait. We found a lot of dope. We didn't find <laughs> so I think, and, and also, but like the casualness with which he says that, I think you wouldn't get now. Yeah. Um, I mean, but he's also still real annoyed about it. You know, I think part why he talked to us uh, is that he's still kind of annoyed at, at, at how it went down and I think he still thinks it's a crime that's worth prosecuting. Mark, the painting wasn't insured at the time. Is that something nowadays that's changed within museums, that pieces are actually insured or it's just too expensive? I was shocked Yes, yeah. I was talking to the, the former lead conservator at the NGV and I was like, and I, and I had read that it was uninsured and I just thought that was astonishing, like how irresponsible. Turns out they don't. 
you, it's too expensive to insure a painting when it's on the wall. You insure it when it's being transferred. So if they've got kind of big exhibitions that are moving around the world, you insure that. You, you can afford that. But uh, if once it's on the wall, it seems, by and large, no museum around the world does it. And uh, I do a, a podcast series for the ABC called Stuff the British Stole, uh, which is about sort of objects and artifacts in museums that, got, that get stolen. And one of the things I learned from doing that is that that's actually a key way in which the museums often hold up repatriation processes because they make countries like Nigeria or, you know, or, or, or Greece pay for the insurance. And the insurance is so exorbitant that these countries are like, ah, uh, uh, even though you stole it, we can't afford this. Um, and so the the role of insurance in all this is is actually really fascinating. I, I'm literally, I, I swear that's going to be the first time anyone in the world has ever said insurance is fascinating. <laughs> in this instance, it, it kind of was. But no, they. But I, what I was told is by and large, when it's on the wall, they're relying on security. They're not relying on insurance. So the series framed debuts on SBS and SBS On Demand on Boxing Day. Do you anticipate maybe receiving one of these florid letters from the Australian <laughs> cultural terrorists? N- nothing would make me happier <laughs> than to have a belated Christmas present yeah. being a lesser from the Australian recently retired cultural terrorists. <laughs> nothing would thrill me more because... I said this to somebody the other day because I, I think there is a million stories that can be told about the theft of the weeping woman. I think we've put together the most comprehensive picture that's ever been done. I think we've spoken to as many people as we can who were there at the time and there in the, in the aftermath. But it's it's still, you know, it, it is an amazing achievement that a city has managed to hold on to this secret for 35 years. Mm. Like, <laughs> if it, I'll tell you what the difference is. If it happened today, it would not still be a secret. Yeah. People cannot hold their tongue. That's but right. But the fact that it has remained, you know, a secret for this long, and, and I think in part because so many rumours and so many um, mistruths have been allowed to proliferate to muddy the waters, because of that, I think it's been able to remain secret because it's such a labyrinth of like, you know, facts and fiction. Because of that, I think it's been allowed to to become part of this mythology. But nothing would thrill me more. If the uh, Australian cultural terrorists want to write me a, a letter, just uh, direct it to SBS and uh, maybe we'll do a sequel. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, and not to be too parochial, but Margaret Simons gets in a dig at Sydney too, doesn't she? Oh, it's my favourite line. <laughs> So it's probably worth, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but it is uh, somewhat ironic that the series is made by a, uh, a Sydney journalist and a WA director, where we're both of us, we sort of, uh, we, you know, we're absolute outsiders to this world. And I, I often say I, I do my work, I, I'm better when I feel like I don't belong, because I feel like I listen better because I feel like I have to understand a world that I don't belong to. Uh, and I'm very, you know, sensitive to that because it is it is an iconic Melbourne story. And <laughs> Margaret uh, Margaret has this great line at the end. She's like, look, if this story happened in Sydney, it'd, about, it'd be about real estate. And <laughs> to be honest with you, she's bloody true. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I, we both, uh, Corin, the director, and I both looked at each other and went, that line has to stay in there. That's coming out. It's not necessarily relevant to the entire film, but it really tells you something, doesn't it? Well, and it's so true. It is about the city's identity, and it is about it is about what makes Melbourne unique in, in the context of the broader country. Framed debuts Boxing Day on SBS. It's a four-part documentary series about the Weeping Woman, and it's vanishing from the NGV. Mark Fennell, congratulations and thanks heaps. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
years ago when I finished playing um, AFL footy, the captain of my team, Debbie Lee, she was also the founder of the club, uh, she asked me if I wanted to retire my number, which mm. is a massive honour. And I, I don't think they do it too often in AFL either. I, I know Brent Harvey. Why, why were you that... Legendary? No. So that's why I was shocked, to be honest. Um, we played state a few times and I, you know, I was a good club person, I guess, but I thought it was a little bit much uh, and she insisted and I was like, um, I mean, if you want to, sure. She's like, yeah, yeah, no, we're going to retire your number um, after you're done. Uh, I was number two. Which I, I, you know, I think I wanted number one, but number one was taken, so I got number two, but I loved it. Have you guys ever played sport, had a number or what number would you want? No, I've you don't never, care. I've never had. I've never had a number play this sport. I mean, no. isn't it only footy that you get a number? No, no, no all sports. I don't like get a number basketball, even cricket, netball? they have numbers. Do they really? Oh, netball. <laughs> You've got me. There, there yeah. are no numbers. Okay, in yeah, this is the only sport uh, I've ever played. <laughs> soccer and. You what do you mean? What We're going to retire wing attack. <laughs> We're just not going to have that permission anymore. <laughs> no one's throws it there anyway. Screw us up next season. But... Well, we respect you, Sarah. Um, uh, I, I, I can't believe it for a start. What, what, like, what do you mean? Cricketers have a number, quickly. Yeah, they, uh, have, they have numbers Not now. forever, yeah. But... Not, not in te- oh, actually, they might have it in tests. Um, but, yeah, they have it in BBL and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. A lot of the time for score – well, it definitely helps scorers and commentators uh, and – audience to be mm. able to see the numbers and then have a look at a record and stuff. Where are the numbers on the cricketers? Am I, are they actually on their backs and I've just yeah. never noticed? Oh, God. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm not sure about the test, but they have definitely have it. In if it's test, it's pretty recent, I would have thought. Yeah, well, mm. after yeah, tri- yeah, definitely. After Triple R, I'm working at SEN, so I think that's uh, secured <laughs> me the job. <laughs> All right. Uh, but so you tried to decline. It wasn't accepted. And so, too, did you feel bad that it's like, I know well, it gets me too? I did a little bit because I think a couple of people were asking, like, you know, when new people come to the club, it's like, oh, who's got number two now? And they was like, no, that's we've retired that number. Anyway, it lasted a couple of years and then um, <laughs> we got a, a third women's team and there were over 100 players that we needed to register. So she kind of asked, she's like, Bobby, look, I'm really sorry, but we, I think we need your number back. <laughs> and number we two, it's, and just number such, two. It's, it's such a high number. Yeah. So I was like, of course, of course, yeah, 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 take it. It came back out of retirement. It came back out of retirement. uh, And she goes, who would you like the number to go to? I said, I I don't don't mind. You just, I was really, I think, uncomfortable with the whole situation of taking it in the first place. And then people going like, what happened to number two? Why can't we use number two anymore? It's like, oh, they've retired because of Bobby. I was like, I didn't choose this. Anyway, they gave the number back and uh, Taylor, uh, another player, she she took it for a few years. Um, and, and now it's just part and parcel because I think there's like over 120 women that are registered with the club. But I think, yeah, Brent Harvey played like over 400 games. So North Melbourne retired his jersey. Yeah, you know Boomer. Oh, no, I'm no Boomer. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm no one. So, but anyway, um, yeah, they don't do it too much in AFL. They do it in NBA and, and soccer for the great players. Um, did, did you get it? What did you do with the jumper? Because if no one else is allowed to use it, do you get to take yours home? Yeah, everyone, you buy your jumper at the start of the year, so everyone just gets to take it. Right. Anyway, yeah. And did you ever frame it or anything? No, no. I've got a couple of memorabilia, like a state jumper and a footy jumper, that's just in a box in the storage cage. Like, yeah. it's didn't like, you, you yeah, didn't oh. even like, have respect for the retired number. No, I didn't. You're right. I didn't earn it. I shouldn't have had it. And, yeah, and, Sorry. and I apologise to everyone. I'm just tearing you down. <laughs> 
I, I, no, it's true though. It's so what a strange thing to have. Like, I feel like the pressure put on you then to like respect the jumper I, or have it framed or something is quite a lot. I know. Yeah, and I, yeah, I had absolutely no respect. Um, you mentioned last week, Smithy, uh, during the break, Breakfasters Breakdown quiz, uh, you questioned because you're stepping away from the Breakfasters whether the quiz is going to be retiring. Oh are yes. Sticking, are you sticking by that or? Truly, well, what an arrogant suggestion! Absolutely, that's why I thought I'd bring it up. My last week, (laughs) just keep staring at my face on the Triple R website and reading the ten thousand articles about my retirement. Um, Should I maybe? Yeah, I'm gonna force my hand. Do I have the right? Oh yeah, here we go. Do I have the right to retire the quiz? You know what? When I um, when I first started, because I had heard the. You know, Jez do the breakfasters quiz, and I thought that was her baby. So I remember coming in the first week, I didn't do it, but there was a bit of uproar. Um, uh, people were keen to not uproar, but people were keen. Yeah, one text. For a t- yeah, one texter. <laughs> My dad <laughs> uh, asking for the quiz to come back, and I'm glad they did because it's been super fun. But what, mm. are, what are your thoughts, Danny? Do you? Think I wonder that- whether it served an extraordinary purpose during a terrible time. And it's time to go. Is it, am I the terrible time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Was there music on before it? Like it was kind of a feel before music. Yeah, there, wasn't the, it? and what the sniffers had come in and yeah, played live. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we used to have live music on a Friday, so All we right. didn't. So we had no guests, and and you know, so it was a good a button on the week that was a regular feeling, and it, you know, yeah. went for two years. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe Omicron will kick off for us. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I reckon if we retired it, it would be quite a beautiful send-off. Oh, my God, retire the quiz. Can oh. I, can I, do I get a, oh, my God, could I get a number? Maybe you could do a number question that is just <laughs> what is Sarah's number and Daniel and I can guess it forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be good. And that would be, and then we retire the quiz and I get a number. We'd retire your buzzer, which would just be some variation of mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or like a one-minute pause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of thought. Yeah, I reckon retire the quiz. Or oh, someone's saying, please don't retire the quiz. Bad luck! <laughs> well, we're just having the staff meeting on air now, so there's yeah, you know, really. there's no bad ideas in a brainstorm. Uh, what else could happen? So, yeah, there'll be something else. What, you might just have music instead. What about, I mean, you, do you wear red, they're your red headphones? These headphones? Yeah. Are they my red headphones? Well, no, I'm not John Laws. Like, I don't have a golden mic. I've got a mic, yeah. yeah. There's nothing here you could take. Um, maybe I'll just unwind the whole mic and take it with That'd me. That'd be nice. Yep. What about a sock? What about a... Oh, a disgusting, dirty sock that yeah. everyone talks into. Yeah. That we put... I wish people could see what we do in the pandemic, the way we put these, um... What would you call the... Thing? Sheath. Oh, I knew you were going to use that word! <laughs> I wasn't going to use that word! That you unfurl. There's an unfurled sheath over the microphone every day. Anyway, I'll take that with me. <laughs> Triple R. For the final time reviewing film for Triple R Breakfasters, it's hello to the magnificent Hayley Inch. Morning, Hayley. Oh, good morning, everyone. Last time hearing the massively inappropriate stabbing lead in music. Please keep that one going, guys, because it's just so incongruous. It's delightful. It really is. It's uh, it's pretty tense, huh? Yeah, it is. But it was chosen by Simone Yabaldi, who does admit that maybe she's outgrown that sound as well. 
Anyway. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave it to Simone and whoever whoever is lucky enough to replace me to decide collectively where where the music goes from here. Right. Um, yeah, bit of bit of a poignant one this morning, guys. Because yes, it is indeed my my last proper film review for Triple R. I will be back tomorrow to talk about you know best ofs of the year for the outside broadcast, which I'm really excited about because, guys, talking to you guys at the end of a phone, that's been a bit grim. (laughs) God. Can't wait to see your flesh. I can't wait to see you all in person and have a muffin and a boogie. It's going to be great. (laughs) Um, But, yes, so I was very, you know, I was very bound up in thoughts of, oh, my goodness, the last one. I really have to think of something really good, very Haley to, like, send us all out with. But then we had a bereavement this week. Author and goth icon Anne Rice passed away earlier this week. And it just came to me. I was like, I have to do it. I have to do the massive gothic shit show that is Interview with the Vampire right. from 1994. Tom Cruise. Tom Bra- Cruise. Brad Pitt. Brad yeah. Pitt. Antonio Banderas. Kirsten Dunst, baby, Kirsten Dunst. This movie absolutely has it all. And I don't think Hollywood has ever seen its like ever since. It is an extremely unique film in terms of its vibe, in terms of its focus. And what it and and Rice did for the vampire in popular culture, I think, cannot be Mm. overstated. I can barely remember it. I haven't seen it, Haley. so can you tell us? Like, I feel embarrassed by that, that, that I should have seen it. But what's it even about? But look, Brad, okay. Brad Pitt and Tom so Cruise look very in love. Are... Oh, sorry, I'm talking over you. No, that's I, cool. I just said I just remember that Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise look very in love, almost like there's, there's quite a beauty, beautiful chemistry between all the, them that's and all nice. the images and, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This movie is all about queer desire, uh, queer desire in the form of being immortal bloodsuckers. So that's one of the reasons why it's highly unusual, particularly for a Hollywood movie of the time, in that, yeah, it's, the queer isn't really even subtext. It is very obvious <laughs> all through the film. But anyway, the, the film opens in San Francisco at night and a journalist played by Christian Slater is meeting a person who is claiming to be a vampire. And that person is Louis, who is played by Brad Pitt in full brooding mode. Um, And Louis tells this journalist the story of his life uh, when he was turned uh, back in the late 17th century in New Orleans uh, by a vampire called Lestat, who is played by Tom Cruise in... Yeah, I'm going to say it is the best role of his career because he just has no breaks on in this entire film. He commits to it 150%. And that's exactly what this movie needs because the entire tone of this film is absolutely hysterical. Like, it, it, it knows that Vampires tunes into so many weird fears that people have and also weird desires you know the vampire amongst 
all of our pantheon of monsters really is this this locus of desire and sex and just the desire that many people have for immortality and to never have to die. And Rice herself was clearly really truly keen to this um, throughout all of her Vampire Chronicles books. So the original interview with the Vampire book was published in 1976 and, yeah, there was a bit of a Hollywood, you know, toing and froing in terms of who was going to end up making this movie, which, you know, took about, you know, nearly 20 years to figure out. Um, originally, uh, Anne Rice envisioned Rutger Hauer in the in the role of Lestat, which obviously, yeah, is a very different vibe to Tom Cruise. And Rice was initially so aghast at Cruise's casting because she just felt that he was the complete antithesis of her very sexy vampire uh, that, 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 that she adored, that she actually made a bunch of public statements repudiating the film as it was being made, and she didn't end up seeing it until a producer involved in the film sent her a VHS copy. And she wound up being so blown away by the film and especially... Cruz's performance that she actually wrote him a personal letter of apology and then took out two page ads in Variety and the New York Times which in 1994 money would have been an impressive amount and she endorsed the film as a masterpiece. Whoa, go in. She did a full turnaround and like if you know anything about Anne Rice's career she's she's a woman who lived many lives and did many turnarounds. They were the most interesting one was when she decided to become a born-again Christian and then start writing a lot of books specifically about Jesus. And then she ended up doing a 180 on that as well because she decided that the church was garbage. Um, she, she was a woman of a lot of passions and a lot of different um, perspectives. And But these books that she, she wrote, they really, and, and this film as well, just really changed the perspective of of vampires in popular culture. Uh, mainly just, yeah, making them really sexy and not shying away from, yeah, um, exploring sexuality via monsters and all of that sort of thing. And there's a lot of things that we would not have now if it wasn't for Anne Rice and Interview with the Vampire. We wouldn't have Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We wouldn't have True Blood. We wouldn't have What We Do in the Shadows. Sadly, we probably, you know, wouldn't have Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> Which oh Anne Rice was not cool with those glowing glittery vampires. She was very anti that. Um, but yeah, she she inspired like a whole genre in in and of itself, which is which is pretty impressive to say. And like, look, I think there's a lot of people who will look back on Interview with the Vampire, the film, and just find it very overwhelming, possibly too campy for them to contemplate. But it is it's such an unusual film because it contains three big taboos of American cinema, which is sex, queer desire, and an obsession with death. And this film is really obsessed with death and, like, the putrefaction of death and what happens to bodies after death and, like, portrays it all in, like, like I said, this really, really heightened 
hysterical way. Like it's really a space for people to just process a lot of emotions and feelings that are very rarely aired in like mainstream Hollywood cinema. Like I cannot think today you could not get a studio or even, I don't even think a streaming service would go for it in making a film like this. There would not be major money behind it. It would not make hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just, it's this beautiful, wild, anarchic, gothic anomaly filled with these amazing, bizarre performances. And I really do want to single out Kirsten Dunst because she was 12 years old when she made this movie and she's phenomenal. And you just sit and watch her and just go, oh, we have so many wonderful roles from her to come. And she came out of the gates just blowing Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt away. And this film is so weird. It's so bizarre. I am constantly in awe that it exists. And to pour one out for a real one this week... Give it a bell, guys. Beautifully put. Oh. Interview with the Vampire, 1994, about 18 years after Anne Rice's book. And Tom Cruise would have thought handicapped being short, vampire, how do you get a how do you get the the height to chomp into a neck? But um <laughs> They put him on a box. Yeah, it's they fine. put him on a box. They always put him yeah, on a box. They always uh, put him on a box. Hayley and and talk- like, yeah, no, very pro Tom Cruise in this movie. He's fantastic. Excellent. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. And it is time for the final Breakfasters Breakdown quiz uh, this Thursday. We brought it forward a day because we've got the outside broadcast tomorrow. Uh, how are we feeling, Smithy? I'm, or Daniel? Well, I'm, I'm getting a bit sad mm-hmm. uh, and melancholy, but um, I'm still looking forward to kicking your ass. Good. I oh. like it. Arsehole to the end. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Um, I'm feeling good. I, I'm, I mean, I'm just so – I feel so honoured that you said you were going to retire the quiz for me yeah. forever. Yeah, well, I mean, you know – And I'm sure you're going to stick with that. Well, I mean, I wouldn't lie to your face. No, you wouldn't backflip on this next year, would I you? I wouldn't, um, but it's up to the producers at the end of the day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the producers. Uh, producers. And they have to run it by the lawyers. Yes. <laughs> the gaggle of lawyers. Um, why don't we start with uh, buzzer noises? Daniel, go first so that Smithy can copy. Oh, you oh. brought the So she can't copy? Is yeah. that why you did no, it? No, no, it's just to make it a big Just one. a bit of fun. Um, you going to pull out a trumpet or something? No, I'm going to go, isn't it ironic? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, because sure. you brought you brought that in. Oh, that's what Alanis Morissette plays a harmonica. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you didn't get no, the... No, I'm thinking of Mouthful of jums on the Great Ocean Road. What's ironic about that? No, you were singing Alanis. Oh, with a mouthful of... Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Oh, God, it's all too much. I've changed my mind. My buzz is going to okay. be... I don't know. No, I think we'll stick with isn't it ironic. I do think so. Okay, but it's going to be too hard to get out and he's going to blast that thing. Oh, as soon as I hear isn't, I'll, I mean... Okay, what about just ironic? Ironic. Okay. Good. Oh, don't roll your eyes at me, Daniel. <laughs> no, no, really he who brought in a harmonica. <laughs> Someone cares about this show. Uh, uh, so, Smithy, you won the last one, four, mm. three. Uh, only seven questions answered. Three of them you guys didn't care for the questions. Um, here we go for the final quiz. Smithy, it's, it's got a Smithy flavour, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, final break passes, breakdown quiz. Ten questions going on about the last four days on the show. Mm-hmm. Question number one. 
Smithy was very annoyed at Daniel on Monday, which he aired during our first talk break. Why was Smithy annoyed? Ironic. Uh, yes, Smithy. I'm so annoyed by my buzzer already. Because <laughs> uh, Daniel was at the same party as me on Saturday night and just didn't come up and say hello to me. That's correct. He ignored me. He ignored. He saw you there. He, thought he saw it was me you there. there. I was giving you space. He saw me there and then told me later, oh, I saw you at the party but didn't come up and speak to you. I thought you saw me and you blanked me and I'm like, fair enough. No, too. don't change your story now. That's she, a lie. I was too far away to be able to see him. I didn't realise you had blind. sight problems. Well, Daniel, why would I see you and blank you? Not blank me, but just you were so engaged. I'm, why would I interrupt? <sighs> Wonderful. Question number two. Uh, all the questions are going to be like this because it's going to be a long quiz. I know. I can't, no, I've taken a couple that aren't specifically about you, but not many. No, I meant about Daniel oh, the draining me. Stuff. Okay. Hopefully. Um, <coughs> if we go a little bit over time, that's fine, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> Question number two. Dono was off to the airport after his sports wrap on Monday. Where was he off to? Ironic. You're, 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 I don't you're, even have it. Queensland. nowhere near. No, not specific enough. Yeah, no, Gold Coast. Did you say Gold but Coast? But I said Queensland. Gold no, Coast is wrong. He's going to an neither. island. Yeah, he was going to Hamilton, Hamilton Island. Hamilton Island. So I couldn't remember it was magnetic island. You... But Queensland's freaking right. No. No. It is, how is it not right? Queensland's like the size the of Europe. At least Gold island. Coast is specifically wrong. Queensland yeah, I'm, I'm is specifically right. specifically wrong. So just put the Face thing closer to you. It's, yeah, because yeah, I feel like you're, you're going to be slow on the buzzer there. So no one got a point there. I, just, that is, I, I can't believe I'm protesting anyway. Bring Question in the lawyers. Question number three. Casey Bonetto wrote a song for Smithy on Monday. Yeah. One of the lyrics started like this. They listened to the universe and so at 6am, what are the next five words? If you sing it, you get a bonus point. Da, 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 da. It's got your nickname in the last two words. They heard the tune, Lord. Yeah, okay, there we go. Yep, we'll give that one to you. Uh... <laughs> Did you sing it? Yes. Kind of? Yeah. Okay, we'll give you a bonus. No one's ever going to forget that. <laughs> uh, question number four Daniel's Jeez. face. What is that face? Not impressed. Is that what it is? Not. <laughs> Looks like he's eating a prawn sandwich. What's going on? <laughs> no, that's it's, right. Uh, and what, what, what was the, did it rhyme? What you just sang? No, but the next bit did. Oh. Too difficult. I just thought it had tune lord in there, so I thought I it know, might be I nice. know, I know. But if it rhymed, it, oh, it would Daniel. have been more of a cue. You brought up. Why am I looking like that? Well, you just look so. You look like something you'd eaten something wrong or uh, oh, good. Oh, good. or great. I couldn't tell. Yeah. Dust on the harmonica. Mm. Question number four. Tuesday's show started a minute or two late because Daniel and Smithy were talking about what off air. You brought this up on air. Have a guess. Ironic. Succession. (laughs) Succession is correct. (laughs) Question number five. Uh, What did Smithy talk about during Tuesday's media segment? Ironic. Yes, Smithy. Succession. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Uh, Question number seven. Vanessa Taholka spoke about emojis this week. Now, Smithy checked her phone to see if Daniel had sent her any emojis this year. When and what was the last emoji? Yes, Smithy. (laughs) The the very last time he sent me an emoji was when my daughter was born uh, in uh, November last year and it was a face with, like, the little love hearts around it. It's yeah, but we, we later confirmed that was fake news. No, it wasn't fake news. No, there weren't other no. ones. They were all before that. Of course, yeah. they, uh, 
Daniel, June's in like high school. I've sent you more emojis. Since <laughs> no, then. you haven't. Well, we, the ones that you were referencing were from before June being nah. born. They were actually. They were. They were. They were. You did. Uh, you took a Valium, you... and it was six months before June was born. When we're in the middle of doing lockdown radio, yeah. So it was August 2020. Yeah, I checked it. Mm. Fake news. So Smithy, you're kicking butt at the moment. Five to Daniel's. Look one. at that love heart, by the way. Awesome what? love heart. Yeah. When was that sent? Uh, Tuesday, 16th of March, what year? Yeah, after, 2020. Uh, yeah, after June. No. Oh, and then that's, no, I've before, gone before June. there's June. Before June. Before June? Because remember I sent you, there was someone playing Oasis, a busker, and I sent you that. I didn't get it. Oh, didn't you? Well, it's not here. Anyway. Bobby just saw the facts there. Anyway, I mean, I saw something. I'm not saying this is interesting this radio. Might, this might truly be the worst <laughs> the worst radio we've ever done, yeah. so I'm really proud of that. Thank you. Okay, uh, question number eight. Uh, Dr. Jen spoke about exercise incentives yesterday, and Smithy brought up the best two excuses to cancel your gym membership. Daniel, what were they? I've moved to the desert. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Correct. Well done, Daniel. <laughs> uh, question number nine. Oh. True or false, there will be free cider at the outside door. Daniel? No. No, you got it. I thought it was you, Daniel. Yeah, I think it was you. Well, I feel like I'm happy to get it right, but I'm sad to say it's false. It is false. Pretty pretty depressing question. What are you doing, Bobby? What what else won't there be? Why shouldn't people come to the outside broadcast tomorrow, Bobby? Any other things that won't be available tomorrow? (laughs) I am sorry. I just wanted to make sure that people didn't get there and then get annoyed that it wasn't free cider. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it's free coffee. No, no. Yeah, free coffee uh, and pastries. Be, yeah. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, there uh, is. Yes. There definitely is. Yes. Free pastries and free uh, coffee. coffee. Um, question number 10. <laughs> what 15-minute window did Smithy first mention succession this morning? Ironic. Yes. The first. Uh, just give us so six, six to six fifteen. No. Oh. Yes, Daniel. Six thirty. Six thirty to six thirty news. It that's was right. After the six thirty news. Because of Daniel's uh, fake news. That is because we did miss a question. Um, so that does make Smitty. Oh, congratulations! You won the last two. You won the final break classes breakdown quiz. Congratulations. How do you feel? Good. I feel so. Um, I just feel proud. And um, if this is all I achieve in life, it's all I've ever needed. So thank you. Thanks, yeah. Daniel, for being a great competitor over the last few years. It is all you've achieved in life, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bobby, for being a great quiz master. And thanks for retiring the quiz in my honour. I appreciate it. We'll save an hour out of my week. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>